we don't quite know what we're walking into. I think we're walking on really thin ice over a really swift flowing river. And we, we're kind of jumping up and down, testing it, and w- without a safety rope. You know, we don't know at what point there'll simply be too much plastic in the sea for marine life to survive. You know, or, or will it just keep on filling its bellies until every fish is gone and until every seabird is gone? Okay, this episode's sponsor is Chelsea Green Publishing. Chelsea Green is recognized as a leading publisher of books about restorative living, diet-focused integrative health, organic farming, homesteading, local food, and much, much more. Check out all the new recent and best-selling titles from Chelsea Green, including Understanding the Heart, Surprising Insights into the Evolutionary Origins of Heart Disease and Why It Matters, by Dr. Stephen Hussey, who we had on the show recently. For more about this title and more, visit chelseagreen.com. And get this as a special bonus for all those Drew Perlman Show listeners out there. Receive 35% off. Yeah, 35% off your total order from Chelsea Green by just using the discount code POD35. That's POD35 at checkout. Welcome to the Drew Perlman Show. Think of this podcast as the antidote to the fear, the noise, and the talking heads in the news. The show features an entertaining blend of ancient wisdom, empowering ideas, and cutting edge, healthy living science to optimize your health and your life. So let's dive in and get started. Today's guest on the show is Fidlim Hardy. Fadlim, I hope I'm saying that right. Am I saying your name right? It's a really good effort. It's uh, it's <laughs> Phelan. <laughs> Phelan, okay. Rhyming with Winston-Salem. Okay, now if you saw the spelling, at least here in the US, you would, you would forgive me for, um, for, for messing it up a little bit. I will, absolutely. So Phelan is a writer and director of an environmental consultancy company specializing in reed bed and other eco-friendly sewage options. He is the author of a bunch of different books, such as Get Rid of Your Bin, Septic Tank Options and Alternatives, as well as Toward Zero Waste, How to Live a Circular Life, which I know we're gonna get into. He lives in Ireland with his wife and two daughters, vegetable garden and lots of willow trees. That pretty much sums it up. So Phelan, maybe just start by talking a little bit um, you know, in your book, which which I'm really loving, I've been I've been going through towards zero waste. You you mention your passion for ecological restoration and regeneration. I was just wondering, where does this passion come from? Yeah, well, you know, first up, it's a, it's a real pleasure to be here chatting to you, Drew. It's it's a it's an honor to be asked, and I'm delighted to be here. And oh, um, yeah, that question of passion. It's funny. I th- I think we all got it at the knee do you know i think that basically growing up it was there was this kind of assumption that we would look after the world around us and not only that but we'd interfere enthusiastically in everybody else's life to look after the world even more Uh, (laughs) you know um and my mom was an enthusiastic environmentalist my my grandmother was passionate about the environment and 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 going back along the generations you know my grandmother's father was involved in setting up a kind of a a pre-planning permission type board in Cork just to oversee 
planning and development at a time when that wasn't really done in order to make sure that things unfolded in a way that was good for the city and you know that that type of thing so the idea of trying to create infrastructural change essentially to create a better world is something that i i, I think i probably have in the blood mm. and um i grew up just on the shores of cork harbour in east cork lovely spot and but with quite a lot of of chemical industry in the area so there was that sense of of enormous beauty and also this kind of threat hanging over the background you know just stories of Bhopal and Chernobyl in my early years and looking out over Cork Harbour and thinking hmm I wonder you know would something similar happen here and and that sense of vulnerability introduced a great I suppose an appreciation for what was around me Mm, that's that's beautiful that's beautiful and you know i was curious because sort of the subtitle of towards zero waste is how to live a circular life and i've never i've never heard that before um phelan what does it mean to live a circular life well we're we're in the middle of a cottage renovation project at the moment and it's the, the, the pressure is just piling on one thing after another <laughs> and all of my various ideals are are slipping away gradually with each new blow of information that I get. But I've had this dream of basically living in a house that will melt away after I'm dead and gone. So it kind of a house like a body that comes from the earth is built up, whether that's clay or wood or sheep's wool insulation or whatever it is, natural roofing. And that basically, once I'm gone, let it melt away again. So that that circularity of simply being part of that, simply being part of the many cycles that exist in nature. And mm-hmm. I suppose how to live a circular life, it's looking at the many and varied ways that we can live and meet our needs without having this, this, this linear production of mine to landfill site. Mm. That's great. I love that. Phelan, so maybe just walk us through for, for people that haven't read your book or that are just really trying to minimize their waste. You you have some great suggestions in your book. Maybe you could just walk us through some of the what you call the essentials sure. for minimizing our waste. I, I should have brought a copy with me. I'm sitting on the side of a hill in the <laughs> west of Ireland looking out over the sunset. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. I got mine right here. So my hands are empty and I've I've no book to refer to. But (laughs) let me see the essential tips. I suppose the first one that that really comes to mind is that moving towards zero waste actually really doesn't have all that much to do with your rubbish bin. You know, it's Mm -hmm. not about what you throw out. It's about what you buy. So the first essential in, in moving towards a zero waste lifestyle is to be really, really mindful about what you buy about the things that you choose to take into your life. And so if you're shopping in your local supermarket or health food store or whatever it is, you know, everything that you pick up and put into your basket, can it go again via, can it be returned, you know, to be refilled again? So zero waste shops are great for that. Can the materials be recycled, which isn't as good, but it's not too bad. Or are there mixed materials that will just need to go straight into a bin and go for incineration or for landfill for, you know, forevermore, essentially? So the questions start at that point. So that's item one. One of the things that's really important to me anyway is to to, to, to compost, mm-hmm. you know, that 
if you've got food waste or vegetable trimmings or garden waste or whatever it is, that all of that can really be composted. You know, pretty much anything that's organic in nature, and I'm not including fossil fuels here, but, you know, anything that's organic in nature that was alive in the res- relatively recent past can be composted. Mm. And even all those no-nos like dog do and all that kind of stuff, ultimately they can be composted in some way, shape or form. Do you know, human ear is a classic one. You know, that that um, every day we sit on our white throne and we flush valuable biomass down the toilet and into the sewer and ultimately into the local river with some degree of treatment or no degree of treatment at all or very high degree of treatment. But basically, we're flushing away a very valuable resource full of biomass, full of carbon, full of nitrogen, full of phosphorus. These are all things that we spend a lot of energy in order to mine and manufacture and get hold of for our farms and gardens. And so we've, we've got it there already. And, and just composting the human urine and everything else in order to, to have that circularity, to begin to close loops on, on the mineral cycles, on the carbon cycles, and on the water cycle itself, rather than just bypassing the wider landscape by moving water from the reservoir into the sewage treatment system and then onto the sea. Hmm. So, so, you, so you can, so Phelan, so you can put, I mean, you, I mean, you can put it all to work. You can put, like you said, I mean, this is the, the urine, the poop, all this stuff. I mean, I don't mean to, you know, I, I haven't heard that much about it, but yeah. as you see it, I mean, this is, this is value. This is valuable nutrients that we can, we can be using. Well, if you consider the number of people that are on the planet and a very small percentage of those actually have flush toilets. So we're not talking about the whole population of the planet, but even the number of people who've got flush toilets, that's pretty big. And if you consider that all of those people are a conduit for agricultural nutrients straight into our waterways, you know, that's a lot of wasted agricultural nutrients mm. that come via our food and via our gut and, and then straight down to our sewage treatment systems and into the waterways. And so in the water, those nutrients are actively polluting. You know, you've got dead zones around places around the US. We've got them in Europe, you know, where where nothing lives in the sea because there's just too much nitrates going into it. And at the same time, we've got this huge nitrogen fertilizer shortage, not so much a shortage, but the amount of energy that's needed to manufacture nitrogen fertilizers is vast. And it's hugely polluting as a, as a climate pollutant, both in carbon dioxide production and um, using natural gas and dinitrous oxides that are used, you know, that are byproduct of fertilizer applications, and that that process is very very polluting, um, particularly from a climate perspective. And so, we've got these two huge problems. And to to quote Bill Mollison, the grandfather of permaculture, you know, we're, the problem is the solution. And also, he's got another wonderful aphorism, which is, we're surrounded by insurmountable opportunities. And so it's that idea of insurmountable opportunities that I love. You know, there's so many ways that we can regenerate our landscapes and and live a, a saner life that is more grounded and ultimately more real. Because a flush toilet, it helps us forget. You know, we don't need to remember that we're human beings having this physical experience. We don't need to remember that, you know, we shit, you know, and that it stinks, <laughs> and, you know, and and that we can just flush it away. But the trouble is there isn't any away. We just flush it down gradient somewhere and then we don't see, we don't 
tend to live in the areas where the pipe goes straight into the river. My mm. my daughter was part of a rowing team recently, and I was doing a little bit of research on the local town sewage treatment system. And where she was rowing, there was almost zero sewage treatment for about one third of our town that goes into the into the river very close to where she was doing her rowing exercises. And, you know, it kind of makes you think. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is this to me is just totally fascinating because, you know, I mean, obviously I'm familiar with composting and and using the food scraps and all that. But but I'm just kind of trying to wrap my head around, you know, using the urine, using the poop. And, and would you would you use this? Um, I guess maybe just give us a rundown on how that would work. I mean, would this go straight sure. <laughs> straight into the soil in some some shape or form or? Yeah. Absolutely. Well, okay, I'll give you an answer. Rather than saying absolutely and agreeing outright, I'd better give the provisos quickly. <laughs> okay. Let me see. By the way, for, for listeners there, there's a tiny bit on compost toilets in the book, but the vast majority is simply reducing household refuse. So just to clarify, but the let me see, the humanure process that I have is we have a, a, a bucket system, which is, it's a bucket in a, you know, under a wooden, um, wooden box type unit with a toilet seat on the top. So I poop in that and add a handful of a mixture of, there's a, a mixture of sawdust and compost and soil in the proportions, roughly 90% sawdust, 5% compost, 5% soil. So you've got this really absorbent sawdust mixed with all of the microbes in the compost and the dustiness of the soil. So it coats the material really effectively. So there's, there's there's basically no odors from it at all. Um, when the bucket is full, I lift it up, take it outside, and I'll put it into a container, a plastic container with worms in it, with red wriggler worms. You know, the, the ones that are used for for household worm vermicomposting, mm -hmm. and they'll get to work on it. When they've gone to work on it, it'll be you know, basically your your pathogen load is way way down because the worms will eat through the whole thing and they'll get rid of a lot of the pathogens. There's nothing visible. What you're looking at is lovely rich soil. And even at that, I'll bury that under a, a trench of comfrey. So I've got the hybrid biomass comfrey that's that's bred the Bucking 14, which is a particularly um, vigorous comfrey cultivar. And the comfrey then, it's really hungry for potash, nitrogen, phosphorus, and it grows really well on the humanure mix. And then I can harvest the comfrey leaves and put the comfrey leaves straight on my compost. So it sounds a little bit convoluted. I know that there's the, the guru of, of dry toilets is Joseph Jenkins, and he's got a really, really clear book outlining thermophilic composting. And the thermophilic is even better because basically, I think it's something like 72 hours at 72 degrees or something like that, and you kill all your pathogens, you know? Mm. So it's really straightforward. It's more hygienic than standard sewage treatment systems. Which, which which just rely on time and cold, mm. and so, um, so with the with the thermophilic composting, it's even better. And so, what you've got then at the end of the process, in either case, is you've got a material. In in my case, I've got a, I've got a, a comfrey bed that produces loads of comfrey for my compost heap, and I get rich compost that way. With Joseph Jenkins, he composts it down directly, and then you can he can use it directly on his vegetable beds. And that's mm. absolutely fine as well, do you know? Mm. So, so that's the process. A much easier way for people who are tuning in wanting to know about zero waste, 
a much easier thing to do is simply pee on your compost heap. You know, not to worry too much about the biomass, not to try and take on the whole world at the same time. But if you can just pee on your compost heap, you're bringing in the nitrogen fertilizer that the that the green that the that the brown material in your compost is mostly carbonaceous material, and the carbon needs nitrogen to uh, to have the the correct balance. I think it's something like three hundred to one parts nitrogen to carbon in a compost heap to get good rich humus. And so the the urine is a really good compost activator, and it brings in a lot of nitrogen in order to help break down your compost into lovely, rich, crumbly soil. And basically, unless you've got a kidney infection, then urine is sterile anyway. So it's it's nice and safe. It's nice and easy. And if you apply it at night, it doesn't bother the neighbors. <laughs> that's great. I was, that, that, that's what was going on in the back of my mind. All right. How do we, well, how there do you we go. pull this off? You know, there's like Absolutely. neighbors all around. But all right. At nighttime. There we go. That's that there, makes sense. There's another there's another method. There's there's a guy who um, I think he was a sailor, and I think he was fed up of losing friends who were peeing in the middle of the night and falling overboard. So he invented a small small little device called a pee buddy, and the pee buddy is a five gallon drum with a, a funnel, and that's clipped to a small little length of hose with a jubilee clip, and you basically for the men in the audience, lift up the hose, go for a pee, and just drop it down again so you've got the uh-huh. so you're peeing into the funnel and then you're filling up this container and when that's half full lift it out dilute it down eight to one and just you know water trees and shrubs and um you know water your garden and it's fine for for anything and then mm. you've got a really well balanced fertilizer mix you know because we're we're animals and animals have evolved with plants and yeah. the wastes of animals happen to be exactly what the plants need which is kind of a, you could call it a happy coincidence, or you could call it a pretty obvious evolutionary requirement. Hmm. You know, and, and and you said eight to one, so you would you would you mean one part urine to to eight parts water? Is that yeah what you mean? Yep. Yeah, yeah. To, to tell you the truth, that's what I've read. An easier way to do it is actually just to choose a different pea, a, a different tree, and you know, move around the garden, and ah. um, and do it that way. But it depends on how much space you have. Okay. It basically, okay. yes. Eight, eight to one with water is the is the general recommendation. Okay. Okay. All right. Excellent. So you know, in the end, in your book, it's it's great because you ask the the great question. You know, is it possible to have a zero waste culture? And you say you say straight up, absolutely. Completely. But you do acknowledge that plastics are perhaps our biggest challenge. Yeah. Why Why would you say that plastics are such a big big problem, such a big challenge? Okay, well, there's a there's quite a specific challenge actually, and the challenge is how we choose to spend our money, and it's not me and you that are spending money. It's the it's the way tax revenue is spent. In 2016, there was 5.2 trillion dollars spent ultimately subsidizing the fossil fuel industry. Okay, globally, so all of that money is being plowed in. I mean, that that includes ancillary costs like covering the cost of air pollution, healthcare costs for polluted cities, that type of thing. So it's not a direct payment to multinational oil companies, but ultimately it's all paying for the problem of of, of oil production. And part of that picture is plastic. So if you're paying that much money in tax revenue to prop up the plastics industry, 
then you're going to get lots and lots and lots of plastic produced really, really cheaply. Now, it's cheap enough already. It doesn't actually need taxpayer support, which it obviously has in, in spades, but it doesn't need that. The problem is that once you produce the plastic, it's there for thousands of years. You know, sure, there's ways to recycle it. And if there's chlorine in the mix, that becomes a toxic process. So polyvinyl chloride, PVC, is a toxic material to produce, to recycle, and to dispose of by incineration. So that's, that's a, a big problem. Now, the other plastics can be safer. Polystyrene is pretty crap as well. But polyethylene, polypropylene, those are a lot safer. But they, they're just phenomenally durable. You know, they last for so long in the environment. So what's the problem with that? Um, we make such tacky stuff with our plastic. You know, we're, we're kind of spending it on the wrong things. Like, you know, oh, where do I even start? I think <laughs> what ultimately your plastic comes from a deep reserve of energy in the soil. You know, whether it's from natural gas or whether it's from oil, you're taking it out of something that ultimately won't be replenished anywhere in the process. So if you make your windows out of your, your window frames and your doors out of timber, you can plant more trees and you can wait and you can do exactly the same thing in 100 years time. You know, when it comes to plastics, you just suck it out of the ground, make your plastics and it's there. And there isn't any sense in which you can compost the plastic and turn it back into oil and gas, you know. And so it, it also, because plastics are so cheap, they displace every other industry. You know, they, they displace uh, a good hardwood timber industry, you know, one that would create other, other habitats as well as everything else and other zero waste products. Like, for example, what am I thinking of? I'm thinking of the willow, um, the willow weaving industry. You know, there was a time when everybody went shopping with their basket, you know, and that was what you did. And you wove your basket out of willow or out of straw or something like that. And that was just part of what you did when you went shopping. Now, if you bring in plastic bags, for example, then these are incredibly cheap to make. They're really useful, but they they literally litter every hedgerow in the country. If you know, while they're after after they're used and once they're on the go, and you you basically essentially shut down your willow weaving industry, because suddenly you've got something that isn't, it's not as beautiful, it's not as natural, it's not as nice, but it's dirt cheap, and suddenly the willow industry vanishes because the because all of your willow baskets are no longer necessary. And there was a, a joke in one of the Irish newspapers, oh, 25, 30 years ago, um, one of our famous cartoonists here, Martin Turner, and he's, he's you know, probably the best political commentator, commentator in our national newspaper, and it, because he just puts his finger on the button every time with his cartoons. And what he was saying, he had two characters talking to one another and saying, you know, if you stretch out every bit of rubbish in Ireland, it would, you know, it would stretch along every single roadside in the country. And the other guy said, hmm, how do you know? And the first fellow said, well, it already does. You know, <laughs> we, we had a huge litter problem, really, really huge litter problem. It was litter on, on every road in the country. It really wasn't something that, that was prioritized in, when I was a child. And we also had plastic bags available in abundance that were stuck in hedgy trees all over the country. And as soon as the plastic bag tax came in, I don't know if you have to pay for plastic bags in the US or not, but here now you have to pay for them. And overnight, 
the plastic pollution from plastic bags essentially vanished. It just it just disappeared. Suddenly there was this levy that people didn't want to pay, and they started bringing reusable bags and started getting cotton bags and that kind of stuff. And it, it literally just changed the conversation overnight and, and literally changed the landscape. And so, and so I can't even remember your question, but I enjoyed ranting. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you were getting at it with the, the, the unique sort of problem of plastic and why it's, but, but as you say, you, you, you still feel them. Um, you still have hope that you, uh, you know, you still do believe that it is possible and, and that we can get to this, you know, we can reach this goal. Absolutely. Um, it's not impossible. We can do it. We can, absolutely. There's something I just want to add to plastic. When everything else breaks down, it breaks down into something that's more digestible for nature. Okay, so when timber breaks down and fungi start to get to work on it and all that good stuff. When plastic breaks down, it begins to break down into microplastics. And we're seeing recently, just in the last 10 years, we're only beginning to see the impact of microplastics. You know, we've all seen photographs of, of seabirds that are washed up dead with, you know, the, their innards full of plastic that they've eaten from the sea. And when they die at sea, those plastic are released again to fill up the next belly of the next bird. And so we actually, we don't quite know what we're walking into. I think we're walking on really thin ice over a really swift flowing river. And we, we're kind of jumping up and down, testing it and without a safety rope. You know, we don't know at what point there'll simply be too much plastic in the sea for marine life to survive, you know, or, or will it just keep on filling its bellies until every fish is gone and until every seabird is gone? And so uh, even on land, like when, um, when food is supposedly recycled for animal feed here, sometimes the, um, when I say here in, in Europe, certainly, I'm not 100% sure about Ireland per se, but certainly in the European context, sometimes you get confectionery wrappers thrown in with the confectionery you know the whole thing is mashed up so um sweet bars candy bars and stuff are all thrown in as waste food but they're thrown in in their wrappers and the whole thing is churned up in a big machine and then made into animal feed and then the animals eat it and obviously the plastic gets into the animal gut as well and we don't know what the dynamics are so when that gets pooped out onto the land what happens to the organisms that begin to eat that microplastic and as it gets smaller and smaller does it get into the worms? I, th I think it does, actually. I think there's, there's basically plastic in our, in our tissues now as humans. You know, it, it's, this is something that's ubiquitous. And we don't quite know what the impact is. But I'm, I'm not too keen to keep on jumping up and down in the ice. Personally, I'd much rather retreat to firmer ice towards the edge of the lake and and back away from that really swift flowing river that's down underneath that's literally ready to swallow us up as soon as the ice melts or or breaks under our feet if if you if you get the analogy mm. and having said that i'm i'm actually hugely optimistic and hopeful for the future i think that so many people are looking around them going lads this is mad you know this is this is just <laughs> this is insane mm. how can we continue to do this you know, to do this to one another and to do this to the to the beautiful earth that we walk on, you know, because in Europe, probably in the US, we were exporting our plastic problem to China for years until China just said, ah, no, we've had enough. We've had enough of taking in dirty plastic and trying to deal with it. 
we're, we're just going to stop. And suddenly, about five years ago, we looked at one another here and thought, oh, um, we thought that all that was being recycled. Now what are we going to do with it? And we, we began to realize that actually, to tell you the truth, recycling is actually a bit of a farce. You know, it's really, it's really, a, it's not the way to go. You know, the, the energy that's required in recycling and the toxicity that's in the recycling industry is, is kind of mind boggling. You know, and it's, it, what we really, really need to do is to cut way, way, way back on, on our expectations of what we buy, you know, to buy really good quality and very infrequently rather than buying cheap crap that just gets dumped straight away and, you know, and, and goes straight into landfill. And clothing is actually a really good case in point because a lot of our clothing is, is plastic. You know, loads of artificial fibers that break down every time we run a wash and get washed out into our water and into the environment. And then, you know, it doesn't even last. It doesn't necessarily look or feel all that comfy or elegant. You know, can you imagine if all of our clothing was made out of natural organic materials? And that wouldn't be difficult. I mean, 100 years ago, there wasn't really any alternative. Um, and it, and you, you have the most wonderful, get that, that wonderful textural feel to just really well-tailored clothes that are that are made out of wonderful materials and and not to be going for the cheap stuff just because it's cheap. Mm, yeah, absolutely. So... So, Phelan, for anybody with you right now, if they, you know, feeling a little bit overwhelmed by the the size of this, if they wanted to get started in a zero waste culture and building that and, and living in that way, um, what might be one thing that someone listening right now who wanted to get started, what would be one thing they could do maybe even today to to take their life in a new way, new direction? Sure. And, and that learn how to compost if you can. And if you don't have a compost collection, collection in your in your municipality already i mean if the council are collecting your compost that's that's fine but if they're not and if you're throwing out food waste of any sort figure out how to compost that or find a neighbor or a community composting scheme that's that's one and that might be too big for some people so the next time you're shopping if you can have a look around and see hmm, i wonder can i just sidestep the fossil fuel industry just today and not buy the plastic thing if i'm given an option from, from an energy perspective, glass isn't much better than plastic, but from a recyclability and a reusability um, perspective, glass is way better. So what I'd love to see is a whole returnable glass bottle and glass jar infrastructure. And we don't have that yet, generally. But generally, I like to buy glass rather than plastic and also to advocate for, for, more, for a glass returnable industry. And, you know, so there's there's kind of two prongs. So advocacy is part of the work. I think part of it is saying, no, I choose not to do that. And another is to say to our elected representatives and our businesses, actually, we don't want you to do that either. Here's what we want you to do in order to build the world that we know is, is possible. So what one thing? Yeah, just be careful with your shopping trolley and really try to cut back on plastic. And I think a really easy thing to do is to look into your bin and see, okay, what, you know, go for the 80-20 principle. What what things, if I got rid of them, what, you know, what 20% of items fill 80% of my bin? And how can I make a shift away from that? You know, if it's disposable nappies, then can I use washable ones? You know, there's some really, really cool 
washable diapers on the market that are really straightforward to use and they don't have nappy pins. So your kids don't scream at you when you try to put the nappy on wrong or the diaper on wrong. Um, you know, that's, that's one, like the diapers have a huge volume and a huge weight in the bin. And others are the spongy plastics, you know, the bread wrappers and fruit wrappers and that kind of stuff. Can you buy in your local market? In fact, yeah, maybe I, I'm going to give you lots of one things, okay? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, so buy in your farmer's market. Find find where your local farmer's market, um, find where it sells from and go and visit them once a week and bring your basket along and fill your basket and talk to your local growers and producers and, and buy it locally. And that's a really, really big one. Because if if your food is grown three miles away, chances are it's got less plastic than if it got shipped in from South America or New Zealand or Europe or South Africa, you know? Mm. Absolutely. And, and the hidden miles, the hidden waste involved in transporting food is enormous. I speak about that in the book as well. Food miles yes. And, yes. And, and, and the waste, the hidden waste involved in transporting things around the world is enormous. Mm. So buying local and similarly buying organic, if you can buy chemical free food, I mean, it's obviously much better for your gut because you don't have those 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 gut problems with the chemicals if you don't have the chemicals in the food, but also it's the whole toxicity of the waste involved in agrochemicals is enormous. And by buying chemical free food, you simply sidestep that hidden waste and you say, yeah, that's that's an industry that I simply don't want to be a part of. I want to choose really good pastured meat, really good pastured vegetables, really good vegetables, really good fruit that's grown in my county or my state. You know that that type of thing, and really, you know, be diligent about about what comes in. And it's a slow process. Take it step by step. It can sometimes take a couple of years to find all of the local suppliers that that provide all of the things that you need. Mm. That's that's fantastic. Yeah, I love that. Love everything about that. Um, Philem, final question for me. If you had the opportunity to travel back in time, maybe 40 years or so, what words of wisdom would your current self share with your younger self? Oh, wow. Anything come to mind? <laughs> Absolutely nothing at all. My mind's gone blank. <laughs> My mind's gone well, completely. Well, blank. you know, you know, you said so much in the last one. Um, maybe you would have said, um, maybe you would have just said what you 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 just said to to your younger self. You know, um, no, I I think to my younger self, I'd have probably spent said spend more time playing with your kids. Do you know, mm. like all this, all this work is really distracting. Do you know, it really is. I mean. I'm sure we were meant to live quieter lives than the lives we're winning, we're living at the moment. Life, life is just crazy. You know, the last two years have simply been turning up the volume on a, a world that was already crazy. But it, like yeah. we're like rats on a wheel, chasing money. You know, and even though, you know, even though the work that I've been doing for the last I don't know how many years, twenty five years, it's been, it's it's been in pursuit of a better world. But at the same time, I'm acutely aware that if I don't earn money, then it's it's not very comfy, you know, that in this culture, money is needed. And I don't know, maybe, maybe I would have said campaign more on universal basic income and less on the other stuff. But nah, I'd have campaigned on the other stuff as well. Yeah, maybe just take the time, enjoy the sunshine, enjoy the kids, 
and and just take it easy. Yeah, and you're headed to the sea, right? You're 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 moving to the sea now, as you were telling me, or by the ocean. So that'll be that'll be nice. Take in take in some of that as well. All the wind that goes with it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's an exciting move, and one of the things that's quite quite humbling, I suppose, about the whole move is that it's it's really it can be really difficult to do the right thing. You know, ecologically, it can be really challenging. And when you're faced with a dozen different decisions at the same time, and the really easy, cheap thing is to do the thing that involves more chemicals and more plastic and all that, it's really tempting to do that. When all of the industry, the building industry around you is saying, yeah, sure, just jam that in there and you'll be grand. <laughs> and you look at it and you go, eek, you know, that, that doesn't feel great. And yet project timelines squeeze all around you and i think this is i'm i'm feeling it now we've had a fairly chilled out life you know in many ways the way we've designed our life has been quite chilled out but you know the combination of uh, flexible working hours and some homeschooling in there and you know all that kind of stuff has been really good so i've spent a lot of time with the with, with the two kids actually but i think that with this building project i'm feeling so squeezed by it and feeling my values being kind of squeezed out like a juicer you know and I think a lot of people in this culture are under a lot of pressure a lot of the time. And it's really tricky to hold to one's values while there's pressure on from all sides. And, and finding a way to just breathe into that space. And I don't know, I don't quite know how to do that. Like the, there's, it'd be lovely if Congress and our Irish Parliament, the doll here, would just sign in universal basic income in the morning. You know, we had something like that here in Ireland during lockdown for, for people who were out of work. And it, it was amazing. You know, lots of people just sat back and took a deep breath and thought, oh, this is nice. You know, this is okay. I'm not working, but I've got enough to eat. And and then the other half of the country seemed to work twice as hard. I was in that category where suddenly it got really busy um, for some reason, you know, for, for certain sectors of the of the population. So, so right. it's it's a challenge. There's a there's an author called Charles Eisenstein. I don't know if you've spoken with him, and he write he's written a book called The More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know Is Possible, and looking at this question of how do we create the space in the world to simply be ourselves and to be okay with that, and I think that that's a a deeply important question as we look towards any systemic change, you know, and any as we look at zero waste and zero waste culture, part of it is simply having the time and space to remain true to our values. But with haste, we forget. Mm, beautiful. That's beautiful. Um, Phelan, where can people go that want to learn more about your books and maybe order your books and, and you and your work? Where, where should they go for that? Okay, well... Chelsea Green are the distributors in the US, and they're the distributors for all of the permanent publications book um, books. So my publishers, they're the same people that publish Permaculture magazine in the UK. And so Chelsea Green are their, their distributors. So look them up. They're in, I know they're in Banyan Books <laughs> in, in Vancouver, but that might be a bit of a drive for various people. My website is wetlandsystems.ie, i.e. for Ireland. And so you can order from me online. That's one way to do it. And and to learn, I suppose, to look at the other aspects of, of what I do, 
there's a there's a website there that people can visit www.wetlandsystems.ie and it's mostly about reed bed systems wetlands wetland rewilding that type of other work that i that i do landscape scale water filtration and that type of stuff um and the books are in there as well the bookshop is is there as one of the linked pages that's great. Uh, Phelan, thank you so much all the way from Ireland. Thank you for so much for, for uh, taking the time today. It's been a great pleasure. It's been, it's been fun to, to listen in and to, and to chat and to have the conversation. I really enjoyed the chat we had before, before even going on air and learning a bit about what you do and, yeah. and see the good work that you're doing there. It's wonderful. It, and that's, that's actually what gives me the most hope. It's that everywhere I look, there are people coming out and doing these things like you're doing with your interviews, just bringing things to the light and, and letting them be known to people. And all over the place that's happening, you know, with community gardens and orchards and everywhere. It's just amazing to watch. And I think that that, that groundswell surge of positive change, I, I really truly believe is unstoppable. Mm, so beautiful. Phelan, thank you so much. We'll have to do it again down the, down the road, my friend. I look forward to it. Thanks a million, Drew. Good to talk to you. Thank you for listening to The Drew Perlman Show. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. In the words of Mark Twain, 20 years from now, you will be more disappointed by the things you didn't do than the things you did do. So throw off the bow lines, sail away from the safe harbor, and catch the trade winds in your sails. Explore, dream, discover, and stay well, everyone.